You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. Getting back into Luke, we might be wrapping it up kind of quick. I mean, we're at... uh, a lot of stories that people are quite familiar with that we've been over many times, but uh, there is a passage that I was like, no, Jamin, don't stop there. You talk about that all the time. People don't want to hear that again, but I, I, it just kept coming back to me throughout the week, so I'm going to go ahead and hop into it, but I'm, I'm going to put a different uh, direction than um, perhaps what you think I'll usually do. So hopefully there's some freshness in this for you. We are in Luke 20, verse 27. I'm in the ESV, if that's helpful. Uh, Though if you're like me, you might just find it easier to just listen along. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the uh, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second, and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. So in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. And then Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. All right, so this passage right here falls into a lot of hot religious topics going on at the time. First off, this is the Sadducees that come up to Jesus. Jesus is in the temple, he's been preaching, and all the religious leaders have been trying to get him stuck in a trap. Let's get him to say some hot topic thing over here that turns everyone against him. And every time that they try to launch a trap on Jesus, he launches it back on them, and then they feel really stupid at the end, and they have to walk away feeling defeated. That's exactly what happens to the Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees held really tight to the resurrection. Like, this was their big, hot topic debate. We believe this is real. Part of the reason why Paul keeps talking about the resurrection, he used to be a Pharisee. So when Jesus ends up being real to him and ends up being proof of the resurrection, suddenly Paul's like, oh, man, this is what us Pharisees always dreamed about. In fact, Paul even brings that up to some other Pharisees at one point, the Pharisees who... who you know, otherwise did not like Jesus. Paul's like, no, wait, Jesus was resurrected. The Pharisees are like, well, hold up. What? Tell us more. What do you mean? What's going on? That guy we killed? (laughs) You know, so like the Pharisees pro-resurrection, Sadducees anti-resurrection. Sadducees were very scientific minded in the sense that they thought there was no spirit. You just died. And that was kind of the end of it. 
the Sadducees also only really held to the Torah, which was the first five books of the Bible. They didn't have the entire Old Testament that we hold to today or that the Pharisees held to. The Sadducees only believed in the first five books. So on one hand, they show up and they're like, oh, the resurrection, Jesus, let's talk about that. We've heard that you've been bringing this theme up where you go. And they think they're going to make a mockery of him. And they start with like, let me give you a scenario. There's a woman who's supposed to have a baby with her husband, and the husband dies. So she's married off to the next brother in line because women were entitled to have children through that family. And they found a lot of their um, uh, ability to engage in society through childbirth at that time. So socially, that woman was owned a child from that family, even if it was the next brother. But then she keeps getting married to all these brothers who then all die. So in the resurrection, Jesus, is there just a woman up there who's married to seven guys? Tell us more about this resurrection of yours, Jesus. And Jesus just kind of like throws them off, right? He's like, hold up, hold up, hold up. You guys think the resurrection is exactly like things are here right now in this age? You think that it's just like one day the day of the Lord comes and it's like, all right, move along with your lives, continue as you were before. It's like, no, of course not. Things are going to be different. People aren't married in the resurrection. There's something different. That's not to say that you don't know your spouse in the resurrection. It's just to say that there's something different going on in the age that is to come. And so Jesus calls that out. And then secondly, he quotes the Torah for proof of resurrection. <laughs> They're like, the resurrection is not real. He's like, really? Don't you remember this verse in the five books that you do approve of? Let me tell you, God's God of the living. If he, if he was referencing Abraham, well, then Abraham must still be alive. Moses must still be alive. Therefore, they must be, in a sense, engaging in the resurrection even now. And that kind of sounds like a loose proof that wouldn't get you very far in a college class today. But in Jesus' society, that was like a home run hit of a theological point to make in the way that they could work with the Bible that we don't allow ourselves today. And so with that moment, the Sadducees, like one, they've been out logic, they've been out scriptured, and then they're just like, okay, let's get out of here. <laughs> Because they dared not ask him any more questions. Let's not look like any bigger fools. He's already outdone the lawyers, the Pharisees, now us. Let's get out of here. But the thing that I really want to hone in on here is not so much about um, resurrection, but identity. Uh, when you look at the kinds of things that Jesus talks about those who are entering into the resurrection, he calls them many things. First off, he calls them worthy. And I think that's an important word to zoom in on because a lot of times in the church today, like we are all about ripping ourselves apart, about tearing ourselves down and putting ourselves on the lowest totem pole we can. In fact, we think that's a holy thing to do. We think that's a religious thing to do. And so if you're like me, you grew up in church thinking I'm supposed to call myself a worm. I'm supposed to be despicable. Oh, this lowly sinful body, there's nothing I can do with it. I'm just a piece of dirt. I was made from dirt. I am dirt into dirt. I will return. Why did God even make me? I'm sorry. I really hope that one day I'll be free of this dirtiness and be good again. And that's not the way that Jesus talks about those who are entering the resurrection. He says they are worthy. Now, worthy is something that you live into. 
Because when you look at where this word shows up all throughout the New Testament, it very often shows up in a catchphrase of Paul, and I think some of the other uh, apostles as well, where it talks about walking in a manner worthy of God. In other words, the worthiness to which we are headed, the worthiness of the resurrection, is also a worthiness that right now we are leaning into. They do not tell us, you are just dirt and so walk like you're dirt. It says, no, 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 you are headed to worthiness, now walk like you are worthy. And the way in which you live will exude that worthiness. Worth, right? It's, it feels kind of like a transactional thing. It feels like a, a scale thing. How much is this worth? Well, let me tell you, this many pounds in Britain is worth this many American dollars. Okay, how much is this thing worth? And that's, that's what they're calling us to. Jesus sees these Christians entering the resurrection as worthy of receiving the resurrection. He doesn't demean them. Jesus was the most humble person that there ever was. And yet he could have been the most prideful person that there ever was. Now realize, Jesus never limited his pride in himself in order to become humble. He still served people, but, but Jesus could, could know what his worth was and at the same time serve people humbly. You don't have to discredit yourself in order to, to not be prideful. And that was something that I had to learn for a long time. I went through this whole journey in my life around the topic of pride. I was kicked out of a youth band when I was in, in high school. And I was like, no, this is the thing that I love. And the reason that I was kicked out was apparently I was prideful and I hadn't caught on to it. Maybe I was. I'm sure there's plenty of things I learned from it. But like, that really messed me up for a long time because now I tried to live out the like dirt mentality. Like, Oh, yeah, when you're on stage, you just got to be nothing. You are nothing. Don't even pretend that you are something, you know? Like, let me make sure my identity is just total crap because I don't want anyone to think that I'm, I'm elevating myself in any way. Instead of just being the Jamin-infused Holy Spirit carrier that I was designed to be, I had to whip myself with insults. Don't you forget, Jamin, you're a worm, you're a piece of dirt. You are unworthy to be on this stage, and you should just be happy that God gave you the chance to be up here. Tell me, is that the way Jesus talked about himself? Can you think of scriptures where Jesus is just tearing himself apart? No, of all the people on the planet, he was the most worthy. And he did not need to demean himself in order to be humble. Now, you've got to be careful because pride is one of the most dangerous sins in the Bible. It causes people to lose their minds and do the dumbest things you can think of. Satan is the prime example. He was kicked out of heaven for pride is what either Ezekiel or Isaiah say. He saw God's throne and he decided that he wanted it. So he tried to usurp God. How does a created being try to overthrow the creator? It makes no sense. But that's how far the pride went to Satan's head. Have you done ministry before? Have you had someone try to usurp the kinds of things that God is using you in ministry? So has God. <laughs> Do you have a friend that's tried to usurp you? Try to slander you to everybody else and turn people against you? So has God. 
Has Satan turned all of the angels, like a fourth of the angels is what Revelation says, or a third of the angels, against God? And they all got kicked out together. Pride can mess you up. But knowing who you are as worthy, as you are walking in a manner of worthiness, that's not a bad thing unless you're letting it go to your head to turn you into something prideful, which is no longer operating out of worthiness. So that, that right there is the first word. I encourage you, what, what God made in you, it's good. It's not bad. Yeah, you're made from dirt, but that's just because you're of earth substance. You belong on this planet, this realm. This is the place that you take care of. It's not demeaning to tell you that you are dirt in the sense that you're made from here. In fact, you've been elevated above all the rest of creation. There's some inherent worthiness in every single person because they are made in the image of God and therefore delegated power and authority to take care of this planet the right way. We all are born with worth. And we become unworthy when we look at other people and demean them and hate them and rip them apart and never spell out better futures for them as we hope for reconciliation and the regeneration of their spirits. You are made of worth and the people around you are made of worth as well. And that is why you must love your neighbor. But Jesus goes more than that too when he's talking about the kinds of things that make us ident uh, uh, give us our identity. He says, in the resurrection we can't die anymore. Why? Because we're equal to the angels. Equal to the angels. I mean, within the grand hierarchy of things, I think there's always kind of this biblical assumption that we are getting to a place where we will enter this resurrection state. Um, like from the early pages of the Bible, I think you see this, like where we are headed towards something that is angelic of sorts. But here, Jesus just makes the blanket statement. Like, if you thought that you were lowly, like in the resurrection, you're going to be made equal to the angels. In fact, you might carry something that the angels don't. Because in the resurrection, when you look at Jesus' resurrected body, it's, it's like an angelic human hybrid. Yeah, it's human. It can pick up the fish and eat it right in front of everybody. But it's also angelic. It can just vanish into heaven and back. It can walk through walls. It can appear in locked rooms. It can... Change the way it looks, possibly. Like the, the body that Jesus steps into is not just angelic, but it's also human, therefore giving itself like the best of both worlds. It's immortal, Jesus just tells us. Like we don't die anymore as we put on this body. You know how much God must trust you in your worthiness if he's willing to make you immortal? Because you know the Bible says that God already doesn't trust immortal beings? Book of Job says that. God does not trust his holy ones. Holy ones were angels. They were spiritual beings in the Old Testament. God does not trust his holy ones. There has been some disconnect in heaven. There are immortal beings that have messed things up. The little G gods of Psalm 82, they're immortal beings. And yet God tells them that one day they're going to die like men because they've super messed things up. They didn't take care of their nations like they were supposed to. They did not do the spiritual tasks that they were assigned. They have not lived in a manner of worthiness, and therefore 
hell is the response to that, this fire that perishes things. Just why Jesus says that hell was made for Satan and his angels. That's the place where, where things go to be rid of. The stuff that does not find itself living into the worthiness of God, moving into the resurrection age of worthiness to come. But apparently, there are human beings, us, who are already inherently, like, we mess things up. We sin all the time. Even on our good days, we usually do something wrong, right? Us, who do that. Apparently, the resurrection is so strong on us that not only are we worthy enough to walk into it, but, but... God is willing to trust you with the gift of immortal life. Something that currently the angels and the gods cannot be trusted with. That's a, that's a pretty big trust in you. Not only that, but he goes on not just to call you angels. They're equal to the angels and are sons of God. I realize that sounds sexist. Obviously, we're talking about both male and female here but sons of god in the old testament was a spiritual term for like god's heavenly family they were the ones living in in the spiritual realm angels were sons of god the gods the little g gods were sons of god the spiritual beings of heaven are the sons of god and jesus takes that term that belongs with them and applies it to you those who are worthy to enter the resurrection are equal to the angels and are sons of God. You are walking into something beautiful and wonderful. And I would suggest to you that if you want to get to that place, if you want to walk in a way that's, that's worthy of what is coming, then you should try to put on this identity now. As I meet with people uh, for all kinds of inner healing, as I hear people's stories, as I look at my own story, I just see time and time again, we are so apt to rip ourselves apart. And this creates a cycle that keeps us stuck in our sin over and over and over again. Because we don't think that we can be walking in a worthy way. Because we don't think that we're walking into worthiness or that we are worthy. Suddenly we find ourselves over and over again just falling back into the same traps. Well, I messed that up a hundred times. I'm going to mess it up a hundred more times. Who even cares? I'm just going to mess up right now. Well, I keep reverting back to the same way. And then we quote scripture to try to say that this is the way that life is. We often go to Romans with Paul, where, where Paul says, you know, like, I, uh, I try to lift myself back up, but sin comes and it tears me back down and, and throws me back in, and then I'm doing it all over again. Oh, this is where I'm stuck. But I don't think Paul was talking about himself. Because if you read the rest of Romans, Paul keeps saying, like, that's not the way that we should be living. So what's up with Paul suddenly saying, like, this is the way that we just are stuck? I think it was a teaching technique. Plenty of scholars have pointed this out, that Paul uses a certain rhetoric where he pretends that he's someone else saying, oh, miserable person that I am, I keep falling in. He's not saying, I am that miserable person. He's pretending to be someone challenging him. It's like a philosophical debate that he is creating with a fictional another person. Because when you look at the way that Paul lived, he was trying his best to step into that worthiness. He said, 
follow me as I follow Christ. He encouraged people to mimic him. He believed that we could live without sin. He believed that we could start overcoming sin right now. And as we grew into the resurrection right here in the already but not yet, we could actually become holy people who no longer get tripped up into this stuff. And at the same time, God had to humble him. Because apparently his pride would go to his head sometimes. And so he said he had a thorn, a messenger from Satan, or an angel from Satan. Almost like he was occasionally encountering these demonic attacks that would then keep him humble before his pride went to his head. So he had to, he had to in his own life, kind of figure out that balance between pride and, and, and uh, um, humility and worthiness and trying to walk into perfect ways, but also recognizing that we all struggle. And he ran into people that struggled constantly in the most incredible ways, and yet he told us to restore them with gentleness. That even though Paul was maybe ahead of the game in life, for he looked even at his own Pharisee life, and he said, like, I was blameless. I did everything right. (laughs) That's that's great, Paul. (laughs) The rest of us are still trying to figure that out. But Paul looked at that kind of life and still like went to those who were dealing with difficulty and loved them right where they were at. Jesus loves you right where you're at. Jesus is not going to make you better by ripping you apart and demeaning you. He's going to make you better by lifting you up and helping you see your identity. And that was a story for me. For so long, I was stuck. till one day I just felt the Holy Spirit really testifying in my heart. You need to lean into your identity. I just found myself, instead of looking in mirrors and cursing myself, you're never going to get this right, Jamin, you schmuck. You can never do it. Instead, I was looking in mirrors and saying, you are a son of God. Don't forget your identity. You can do this because the Holy Spirit is inside of you. And don't tell me that he's unable to do this. And that began to shift something in me. That for me personally, I was freed of something demonic, like there was a a literal release of something. And as I've worked with people in inner healing in that world, like I've seen that over and over again. I know one person, uh, when we got the, we were trying to get the name of the demon, and they saw it. It wasn't happening in real life, but they saw it just writing its name on the wall. (laughs) And they gave it to me, and I was like, okay, that's... Let me Google it. I Google it. It's a Greek word. shows up once in the whole Bible. And it kind of has this feeling of uh, insult or um, hatred um, or, like, worthlessness. It's a word used once in the Bible to imply all these kinds of things. And as we stopped and looked at their life, we're like, okay, yeah, you, you deal with a lot of self-hate. You, you feel worthless, if we're going to overcome this demon, then, then Jesus is encouraging us now. Like, we got to step into a, a different way of thinking. You need to know you are loved. You need to know you are cherished. You need to know that you're worthy. God is not ascribing worthlessness to you. That is the literal name of this demon. <laughs> so let's overcome their lies. And that's a really heavy thing for us to overcome. Because those kinds of statements are loud. They've grabbed onto us and they speak identities over us. 
How often we stay up late into the night thinking of how worthless we feel or the things that went wrong or the way that we uh, could have done better. How often do we pray and repent of the same exact thing we've already repented of that's already been cast as far as the east is from the west, but somehow we tracked it down and brought it back before God? Say, let's, uh, let's do this again. How often do we lean into the wrong identities that just keep us stuck in the wrong identities? So as we wrap up here, go ahead and just close your eyes for a minute. As I often say, go to Jesus. You can do that however you want. I often encourage people to imagine him in a daydream. I know people are often used to wanting to think if they see Jesus, he's just going to lay into them and convict them. Others who are really dealing with a lot of self-hatred think that he's going to lay into them and condemn them. This is the Jesus that's calling you toward the worthiness of the resurrection. This is the Jesus who shared the gospel with you that you have received. This is the Jesus whom you are following after. It's the Jesus that thinks that you are worth being trusted with uh, immortal life, whereas immortal beings so far throughout history have failed there. It's the Jesus that calls you a family member, your son and daughter of God. You're equal to the angels. You're at the top of the top of the hierarchies. This is that Jesus. Jesus, as you come to speak to each of us right now through your Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak at least one word of identity to each person here. Exactly as they need to hear it. We've already heard your words of identity in this passage. But may we now have one specific word given to each one of us that you want to say. Would you whisper it now? Holy Spirit, would you let us lean into those words of identity? If anyone here did not feel like they sensed one yet, would you speak it to them later, either in a dream or when they're praying later? In the meantime, would they be able to lean into the words that we've shared today?
straight from your scriptures. And Jesus, we realize that the resurrection is something to come, something that we are deemed worthy to step into. We want to walk in that direction now. We wouldn't have any surprises on the day of judgment. We also try to rest assured in the kinds of things that Paul said, realizing that identity is already here on us right now. That we have already been prejudged ahead of time. Covered in the blood of Christ. But may that not stop us from from doing what we are called to do. As we know that the Bible speaks a lot of... uh, danger over that kind of lifestyle so here we are we're leaning into your words any chains and bondage that are on us um, that are held by old identities with those old identities break off and those chains break off now as we continue to rip them off in jesus name amen